Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know we harp on it a lot. You need a good pair of binos. Yeah, I never hunted with binos until I was almost into my 20s. I never did it when I was a teenager or anything like that. Or when I was a kid, we never had binos. And when I bought my first pair of Vortex binos, the first binos I ever purchased back in like 2015, it immediately made a huge difference for me, especially in the turkey woods. So give yourself the advantage of a good pair of binos this spring, whether you're looking for more of like an entry-level bino like the Vortex Diamondbacks or something really, really nice like the Razors. Vortex is going to have something for you. And hey, don't pay full price for it. Use our discount code at eurooptic.com. Use the code SGN10 to get a discount on any Vortex optics that you want to order. Again, that's eurooptic.com, code SGN10 to go get a discount on any Vortex product you order. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. We're sitting here 
at NWTF, last recording of the day. <laughs> All right, we got a little round table going on. We got the ginger bow hunter to my left. How you doing, Jacob? Oh, doing well. Start getting doing distracted. Over there. He's, yeah. he's just totally distracted. He's, he's fried. We got Matt Dive, Landon Legacy. What's up, guys? Oh, not much. Just ready to go home and go to sleep. We got Chad Keith. Of- no, I, I'm sorry. That's not his name. Ch- Chad? Chainsaw. He wasn't here on the Chad first Keith. one, That's he? right. It's, it's Chainsaw Chad. Chainsaw Chad. That's much cooler. I like right, that. Right? That's a lot better. <laughs> I don't have to correct you on your own podcast, but I just like, he he deserves that introduction. Chainsaw Chad. Chad, if you that. ever lose a bet, that's got to be tattooed on you, dude. <laughs> yeah, probably. Get it right I, here I did neck. have to. Right, like, what was it? The day, the day before I came down, I had to go to the eye doctor because I had a piece of... From sharpening a chainsaw, I had a piece of metal in my eye. Oh, yeah. I broke my back, dude. I broke my arm. I've had a bunch of injuries. Of all injuries, anything to my eye, that's the worst. Like, one of the worst fears. Like, dude, no. Yeah. Like, yeah. That, mm. Dude, no, thank you. No, thank you at all. But I'll chainsaw Chad's on here. So, um, man, guys, we're, we're wrapping up NWTF. But, uh, People are leaving leaving fast yeah, pe- exodus. Pe- people are leaving I was like I'm trying to plan a couple episodes for tomorrow and I just got the where we can't use this booth space at all tomorrow because they're breaking everything down tonight I'm like alright well that's going to be a little interesting oops yeah but dude it's been it's been hectic I know it's been hectic for you guys too but getting to this topic I want to go through a, uh, a discussion that I know y'all have talked about probably extensively on y'all's show on y'all's podcast which of course yep. is Lane the Legacy anyone that doesn't listen y'all can go download and check it out Lane the Legacy and then also LaneTheLegacy.tv man I've got all y'all stuff memorized I got the hat that's too good, it's good like, like, man it's just an extension of y'all's show walking salesman over here listen that's, so my, that's, that's, my, that's, that's my background so that's my background <laughs> but getting into this there's a topic that y'all discussed that which I found very interesting, which is the topic of uh, that y'all turned steel before steel, which is steel chainsaws before, and just for this example, steel chainsaws before steel traps uh, in some areas when it comes to quality habitat management and focusing a lot on the habitat and putting excess habitat on the ground, not even excess, but just better quality habitat on the ground to then in turn have uh, just better overall, uh, I guess, recruitment numbers of all game right. species, but specifically talking turkey poults. And also, I guess you could apply this over to quail, too. Yeah. Um, so it kind of kicks off. Chad, can you can you walk through us uh, just on this episode? Uh, this is this kind of based around specifically y'all's property, y'all's family farm, and then also you're in Adam's place, uh, which is it all together or is it two separate properties? It's it's. It's it's contiguous. I mean, it's so contiguous. That's it's it's all together. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so, how many acre? By the way, how many acres do y'all have total? It's close to nine hundred total. Mm-hmm. Um, we own the family farm is about two two eighty mm-hmm. around two eighty. Um, the the place that we bought is around four seventy. Um, and then there's one uh, one twenty that the landowner that we purchased our part from has kept for now. Anyway. So all of those together is close to 900, something around there. And this is in uh, just kind of regional wise. We're talking Missouri here. South, uh, South Central Missouri. Just on the edge of the Ozark Mountains or are y'all just outside of that? We're in, no, yeah, we're in, in Ozark Mountains. Oh, you're Mountains. in? Okay, yeah. cool. okay awesome. I awesome. mean, we're, we're a county from the Arkansas line. So, like, I mean, we're far southern Missouri. So historically, this area... Uh, based off like habitat like if you're going to describe this to listeners that aren't familiar with you know this area and this kind of landscape how would you describe it traditionally for the most part it's traditionally oak hickory forest a lot of hills i mean a lot of terrain changes um a lot of really clear creeks i mean and then scattered pockets of shortleaf pine they're shortleaf are native but a lot of them have been cut out in 
very early years of settlement. Um, so it's it's predominantly oak hickory. Our area is close canopy timber or fescue pasture is is predominantly what you see around there. Um, years, not even ten years ago, there there used to be a lot of dairy farms in the area. There was especially as you go a little farther north, there was a lot a lot more dairy farms than what there are now. The, you know the dairy industry is it's a it would be a terrible industry to be in right now um a, a large majority of them have have closed down like they've they've shifted to beef cattle they, they don't run dairy cattle anymore so that's kind of the, the base off the area kind of where you're talking at again um what it, traditionally though when you were looking back say a few hundred years ago or even longer what was this area more what did it consist of again so, traditionally luckily there were some of the early explorers that journaled their their explorations through some of these areas so that we can look back and see what these areas were historically and um one of the ones for this area is uh, henry schoolcraft was an explorer that went in the very early settlement days where there were some settlements on the white river which is now like bull shoals lake and north fork lake and table rock um what he saw were it was a lot of like describes like barrens a lot of the ridges were just like open or very open very mature canopy or very mature trees in the canopy but then a lot of space in between a lot of grasses a lot of forbs and a lot of wildlife like um, savannah woodland for those people who are familiar with those terms were common yeah. So that's what, historically, that's what a lot of it was. They, they talk about being able to ride a horse through the timber and never duck a limb. So way dramatically different and, than and what I, it is now. I think that's important to note is like what we term as timber now, our definition, obviously with that statement, it's totally changed, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking lots of stems per acre is what most people are, are referring to as timber. But in those days, that was timber because that's what the region was offering and a lot of the other portions of the country so that's what they had to go off of when they say timber but it was that open so which is crazy if you think about the difference between that versus what is now it seems like that is a a common theme across a lot of the portion especially in the southeast where that was the grasslands were a lot more or like kind of those hard or those woodland savannas Mm -hmm. were much more common yeah uh, you know, the, the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative is a is a great, great, great resource to look into and see the you know they talk about the myth of the squirrel and <laughs> and and break yeah. that down of of and show the truth and and all how we can look at a lot of our like historical names like the names throughout some some regions where it's like our area. Um, there there are names throughout like landmarks that make you kind of kind of show what the the stark difference to what it was historically when they were naming places i mean you see stuff named after prairies and named after like buffalo elk. and yeah and stuff that you go there now and you're like why why was mm. it named this mm. well it was named early settlement or even the native americans named mm. them because of the features that were present then mm-hmm. but not necessarily now mm-hmm. real quick real quick can we talk about the myth of the squirrel I yeah, like so the, explanation. yeah, I have, I, no, don't I have do, no idea what this means. I don't do. Yeah. Oh, this is good. I yeah. don't do near as good of a job as uh, <laughs> Dr. Estes that's that runs the Southeastern Grasslands Initiative. But in a sense, it's there's a myth that 
you, you, a squirrel could get in a tree at the Atlantic Ocean, like before settlement, that a squirrel could jump in a tree in, along the Atlantic Ocean and and go through the treetops all the way to the Mississippi River. I guess it could, like there was contiguous. Yes, right, right, people right. have that belief that before before European settlement, that it was like this vast forest that was unbroken that and and that's what like the southeastern grasslands initiative is trying to dispel is that that's not true there were prairies throughout the southeast and and then also all kinds of the different grasslands mm-hmm. i feel like history failed us on that when it comes to schooling because i did not learn <laughs> i didn't i mean i didn't learn anything about that no, to be honest no no one teaches natural history yeah everyone teaches history Ish. from a from a human standpoint but natural history is is super important yeah. and i think that's where your extracurricular learning has to go into if you're interested in that if this is sounding any at any sort of in, interest to oh, you no, it's fascinating. you've got to dive into that yeah. because right it's not commonly taught but what we understand to be true is oftentimes not true when it comes to natural resources mm. well, and, and we're, we're getting up in all this background and people are like well how is this going to be relative to the topic at hand which is you know y'all's farm uh, yeah chad is is kind of what y'all have done there it's trying i was trying to give a, a picture of a landscape of what this area used to look like and really what a lot of the southeast used to look like to then understand what's changed and again the last few hundred years uh which by the way what co- not to get too sidetracked here is, is there anything that's been like described or been founded as like certain reasons why like the the high stem cap forests have now been a common aspect of kind oh, of our yeah. landscape like what's been some of the causes of that there's uh, two main ones okay. number one i'll throw one out and you you explain the other one but grazing has completely changed right there are grasslands the large herbivores uh buffalo elk well they're not present anymore Right, and, and so uh, now grazing systems are revolved around improved pastures and such as well. Um, so now you've cleared, you've removed the native grass component, and you've brought in cool season grasses in a lot of situations. Um, that doesn't necessarily explain the closed canopy to the fullest degree, but the second you need aspect, the combination of the two. Correct. And the other one is prescribed fire or natural fire in those days i mean you think about the roads that we have the road systems that that we have a maze of roads throughout the the country the fire is going to stop at those natural fire moved across and you had very hot fires at times like the fire moving across you had areas that burned hot you had areas that burned cooler and you had areas that that didn't burn all the time but when you look at a natural fire moving across the landscape, it's going to it's gonna kill some stuff. And so then you have that on top of all of these large herbivores. You're going to see a significant different landscape than what we see now. When you take both of those away, you're not going to have a grassy, herbaceous understory, a ground cover. You're going to have leaves as a ground cover. That's something, especially like in the south, you deal with. Even in like national forest ground, it's a problem we deal with because it's you have such a a high amount of rainfall your annual rainfall is so high your your vegetation grows so fast that you can't at times it seems like you can't burn it enough to keep that knocked back we're missing that large herbivore part to the system you have that working in conjunction because a lot of times the way like the natural like say the buffalo moved across the landscape 
and we see it in patch burn grazing systems where the fire manipulated how they grazed they fired the they they followed the fire around because that that nutrient rich fresh growth they moved to that so it was it it moved across the landscape in a system that we don't see at all now and and in extremely large numbers and in high densities so you know we're, we're talking about i guess we're, we're generalizing by saying grazing and prescribed fire but when you look at like the details of those the frequencies that that disturbance really detailed now that's why we why we see what we see which maybe we should explain the the benefits of like that kind of habitat like these woodland savannas is like the abundance of species that can live in these areas compared to a closed canopy forest especially oak hickory or even pine Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter but closed canopy forest can y'all talk about especially the the differences of potentially what wildlife probably looked like back then compared like what y'all were dealing with you know, back when, you know, y'all's farm was pretty much closed campy and a cattle operation, uh, just with the lower deer numbers and everything else, yeah. and probably just wildlife in general. So when you look at that landscape, there's significantly more diversity throughout that open canopy that seems like regular disturbance compared to our farm, which when we bought it, besides our our management of that place since we didn't own it was limited um it had had a previous owner before the landowner we bought it from that had logged and then walked away on portions of it and it was solid for the most part black oak timber there were some white oak scattered through there was a little hickory but for the most part, even even tree species, very little diversity in those. And then it was leaves underneath. You might have a little poison ivy. Well, you, yeah, you yeah. might have a little um, grapevine, but no, it's very 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 little. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing: and on the the big large scale, when you have closed canopy timber, that means you don't have sunlight getting down, right? So you're limited to diversity being tree species, which you just talked about. But then if you only have trees then you only have mass production to be able to rely on. And that's a fraction of an entire growing season or, excuse me, an entire year that food is going to be readily available. And that changes year to year, right? Mm -hmm. So that's your biggest production factor of forage. Like, that's all you have to go off of. Compare it to a savanna, compare it to a woodland, there's grasses present, there's forbs present, there's shrubs present. And there's mass-producing trees. So forage and cover component-wise across that landscape versus closed canopy forest with no understory, mm-hmm. that's why you have differences in game animals and the prevalence that you're going to encounter them. And again, people are wondering, you know, we talked about steel before steel and probably trying to get the big picture of this, which is, you know, in areas where you don't have the quality habitat and the understory and the grasses and the forbs, there's so only so much cover that you know say in a turkey situation you know in a hen that's going to nest there's only so many areas of security coverage she's going to have to be able to pick from and sometimes like i've seen on national forest on, on some public land where it's maybe in an area a large swath that's burned fairly uh, regularly there may not be like all that cover for her to be in or in an area that's just closed canopy and you might have to have a hen in this situation nest in an area that would be less than ideal if she had more of those grasses and everything else to be able to kind of get into um with y'all's property chad can we talk a little bit more about pre before y'all started doing any kind of work on this area especially with your family farm 
what had been the let's say the last like 15 20 years experience hunting out there and like which which y'all were experiencing game yeah. species or so, game wise <clears throat> so turkey wise growing up southern i mean southern missouri's known it was we were, house of hay we day were of turkeys. very blessed growing up there turkey hunting deer hunting was another story but turkey hunting was phenomenal um but then probably was it six seven years ago maybe something like that seven I'm trying to remember exactly pretty, day, pretty hard we started to see a decline and it was like we had two or three big flood years where we went through a severe downturn it wasn't the slow decline that someplace it was we went from there was one year that and i think adam mentioned it when he was on with you guys the we had a year where we killed six birds we killed six birds on that 900 acres and and had cameras out after season where we knew of at least like eight longbeards still on the place mm-hmm. wow and within just a few years there were two longbeards that we knew of on that 900 acres and that was where adam and i quit hunting it we found other places to hunt like we're not touching them that was about the time that the landowner we started working with him and doing some some timber management on his place we were already we kicked it up a notch on the family farm the family farm we can't log right now so it was more just tsi work but we kicked up our burning um and it took a little bit we've seen a slow but also when we were when we saw this downturn we were trapping at that time i actually worked in missouri i worked close so i could check traps every day and so we were trapping through that time that our numbers plummeted um we then i ended up taking another job and i wasn't close so we had to prioritize our management and and it turned into with the other stuff we were doing more that's like a little bit beforehand before they really took a sharp drop off well i mean we were we were trapping at that time when the numbers dropped yeah and and then that was when we really kicked up management stuff was about that same time too and it came to um last year was the first year adam and i both we, we let the numbers build up quite a bit and and last year we're like okay we're to that point we can hunt and we both killed one opening day and and saw we had a pretty good hunt <laughs> maybe there's seven long beards in range that morning yeah but like and that was that's one of the things we've kind of shifted we're we're pickier on our hunts now that was what we told last year we told ourselves we're like we're not going to just kill turkeys just kill turkeys we're going to have to have really good footage we want to make sure it's a really good hunt so like we would have birds that do the telescope look over the ridge we just let them go we're like we don't have enough footage of them let them walk let them walk off and we'll, we'll call them in again and so we we did that but and even like this past winter um i had a hunt i think i mentioned the thing i saw saw 19 jakes in in one group and and then had a group of there was a group of hens they've got around 40 it's it's hens and jennies that there were about 40 we had a group adam posted it i think it was adam that posted on social media the day of seven there were seven strutters 
seven long beards strutting together and a couple other in the picture or at least one other in the picture and some jakes around so the 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 group of 19 jakes is in they're on their own we we see them on camera there's no long beards with them so there's other jakes with the others we had a we've had a couple years of great hatches around our place now you talk to some people locally and they're not in the same boat i mean there's still people around locally they're like they're they're singing the blues and it's we can talk to them and tell them but they're 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 struggling with it i mean it's it's not the easiest thing to do to know you need to bust out a chainsaw and start cutting some trees down Mm -hmm. but well and i think uh, when everyone sees things let's say on a downward type trend there's a lot of um uh, blaming finger pointing these things and then some people just honestly are slower to be able to react to that and acknowledge it that like things are changing we're i would say we're pretty observant like on the landscape of like trees are changing plant communities are changing game species are changing so like when they started going downhill on your all's place is like whoa let's pull the reins back like y'all stopped hunting your dad yeah. killed like a bird a couple a couple dad, years yeah. dad but, like, dad dad's not gonna hunt anywhere else dad's gonna right. hunt there so that was where we were like okay dad can hunt and especially that that first year it was like all right dad we will go with you and call you in one bird and i mean dad's dad's killed plenty of turkeys by himself but it's like it it's a pretty we've got a pretty good system <laughs> when we yeah. when we work together mm-hmm. and it was like we're going with you once but we'd prefer if you don't kill anymore and, and it's not like y'all were going and killing two there you know no, it was we elsewhere were, like we totally other different places farms. we hunted public ground we hunted another place that and we, we hunted another place that i really we were fortunate to be able to hunt it not just because it was filthy with turkeys but it was also gave us a perspective that i've been able to talk to people that you know the classic when you talk turkey declines it's it's stuff like coyotes get blamed coyotes Mm -hmm. a big one we got too many coyotes Mm -hmm. the place that we started hunting is filthy with turkeys but is also filthy with coyotes like I've hunted a lot of places. I, I like to roost turkeys in the evenings. And a coyote howl in my mouth. I can go places in, like, the farm. We still, I mean, you'll have them answer you occasionally. We have coyotes on camera. We have quite a few around. That place, I use the coyotes to get the turkeys gobbling. I will coyote howl and have the other, have coyote different packs answer me and get birds to gobble. It is, that's, I've had... It's, coyotes it's try extremely to grab, rare not to ha- not to hear coyotes. Or I mean, see it is, them. We see yeah, them all regularly. The time. But it also is absolute. We had a 17 Jake day one one day hunting where we saw 17 different Jakes wow. trying to trying to get on on toms. So I mean, I it, mean it's not uncommon it's, to hear 15, 20 birds on a limb on a good gobbling wow. morning. Yeah. on that place. It's, <laughs> it's a it's a crazy place. I mean, it's and, and you had to pick a side. That's like north side versus south side like there's a lot of turkeys there but there's a lot of predators there which brings the topic which is kind of again the idea for this episode which is you know steel before steel you know what is y'all's thoughts and approach when we're because this is like a there's so much to this like conversational wise between like habitat and, and forming better quality habitat versus and not even just verse, but compared to just focus solely on just trapping alone and not doing anything habitat wise 
can, can we kind of like hash out the discussion? Because I feel like this episode could like, I know when y'all did this, I'm sure y'all probably yep. tick some people off. I'm oh. sure. I'm sure. I'm, I'm just, and we steamroll some toes occasionally. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but I mean, it's it's all because it's science backed and I mean factual, like re- realistic application of mm-hmm. habitat management. And, mm-hmm. and I think it's one that you guys had to preface too because of some of the comments that we're not anti-trapping mm-hmm. not one bit i mean not kyle bit. kyle's traps a consultant all the for time. us is and, and frank they both yeah. are active trappers it is it we're not at any way shape or form against it as a management tool um but it has its place and it does not supersede the need and the requirement for quality habitat and when you bar none when you you have a number of things pulling at your time you have to prioritize where your time is best spent and that's that i mean that's what adam plans on when he moves to the farm he'll probably do some trapping just i mean and we've kind of discussed it where it's like just to see if it makes that big of a difference if we can tell or we i mean and we also kind of had it weighed over where it's like do we want to even start with that or do we just leave it with we don't trap we're, our numbers are great and we don't trap but and we're still i mean we're still weighing it but it's so so far with so that far, with comment, there are, hasn't been a need wow. because when the habitat has been addressed and the low points the the habitats that's necessary to produce more wild turkeys is present they respond positively in the presence of predators not not uh, not because predators have been removed but because the habitat and the plant communities spatially across the farm have allowed better reproduction and rates. we're kind of to the point uh, like we don't have the time we have so many other things habitat wise to do that if we're at the farm we have to prioritize and like okay we need to get this done but we that's not isolated done. to you yeah, right? I mean, I mean everybody think, has everyone that. listening to this, let's be real. Like, not everybody uh, lives on the farm that they hunt. Not, if you do, congratulations, that's awesome, um, number one. But number two, you, you may have a full-time job on top of that. Then you may have kids. And so, really, can we be really effective in going forth and trapping and removing a lot of predators that would potentially make that difference that you want to see because again we all want the same thing mm-hmm. but you're trapping necessarily doesn't necessarily make more turkeys turkeys are made when when they are they can nest successfully um, and there's a component of predators in that equation we're not mm-hmm. saying that there's not but there's not nesting substrate like grasses down trees shrubs Forbes, there's not that present. Well, you didn't even give them a chance. Like, well, like if it's closed canopy forest, they have leaves or pine straw. What chance do they honestly have to be? There's no protection visually for that hen to lay and sit there for literally 28 days once her clutch has been fully laid. When you think turkey calls, think a houndstooth. 
Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different read configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB Hen, some days I might like the Ghost Cut. Some situations I might like the Country Girl Call, you know, that I can cut on really hard, where on other situations I might like the All Pro that I can get a little bit softer on. Bottom line, there's something for everybody and something for every situation. And hey, you you can get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls by using the promo code SOP24. That's SOP24. Use that promo code. It'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast. You know, the, the thing to point out is we're not at all anti-trapping. There's consultants on our staff who are heavy trappers. There's just a time and a place and the place is secondary, at least secondary, to doing habitat management because we can't expect game animals specifically the wild turkey to be able to exist reproduce without adequate habitat on the landscape i mean that's just that's and 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 honestly that's that's one of the main issues in drivers there's factors of predation 100 percent into what we see across let's just say the southeast Mm -hmm. that's that's who we're talking to a lot right now we see that for sure but there, there's only so much trapping that you can do. Like you, you can, uh, you can't trap your way more turkey numbers. But, but, like, hawks. You can't trap hawks. Snakes, huge predators in the nest. You can't trap those. So we can't like remove these animals from the landscape. Nor should we think that that's the solution. Mm-hmm. But we can't expect wild turkeys to exist and persist without adequate habitat so we got to address that first so it's kind of like to oversimplify it it's kind of like you got to build the house before you start doing the pest control we we actually well, we, had that said oh, on did a you? podcast well, well you, you guys was that i travis, swear i didn't hear that on your show <laughs> no, well uh travis sumner biologist for nwtf mm-hmm. he said think of it like this or, or this is a way that we went through and thought about the property that nwtf owns there in edgefield he's like we wanted to make sure before we started to begin the trapping process we wanted to build the house before the tenants which were the turkeys moved in we had to have the structure that they were going to utilize Mm -hmm. in place then the tenants would move in and now they're coming in to add trapping on top of as an added layer another benefit that is going to complement the habitat that is existing now. One of the biggest factors that we weighed to in deciding on, I mean, we, we were pretty set, but to solidify our decision on doing habitat first was if we would have went in and, if we would have went in and trapped, it's been a long weekend, <laughs> we, we could have stepped away the next year and it would have went right back to the same thing. Like we could trap hard because we've I've seen people do it. They trap the numbers hard. And then if they couldn't do that the next year, it's right back to the same thing. Like their difference was gone. If we're doing the stuff that we're doing now, yeah, you still need those disturbances, but there's some benefit at least for five, 10 years. I mean, we've opened the canopy up they'll have that benefit for multiple years 
after after we like if we walked away right now, our turkeys are still benefiting. If we'd have just trapped next year, it's right back to the same game. And, and that's what research is showing. I mean, there's temporary voids that can be created on the landscape by removing those predators. However, in a reproduction standpoint, they're coming back in. Right, mm-hmm. those male dispersals for a lot of like we're talking coons um, and, and coyotes, mm-hmm. which coyotes, yeah, they're they're on the landscape, of course, but like just the way that they are um, designed, the way that they predate, they're not a huge factor into the turkey situation. Like, that's just not their main focus. But similar to to other predators, when you, if you trap some, it's just a it's a waiting game before others move back in and fill that void. And so, like you said, your lasting effect, if, if time is, on, is not on your side, you want to make the biggest bang for your buck. And when you implement sound habitat management techniques like a big disturbance of canopy reduction like you guys did in timber harvest, wow, yeah, you're going to see some lasting effects of that that's going to carry on even if you stop. But that's the added benefit. That's yeah. not at all in the equation for you guys of, oh, well, now we just did our timber yeah, harvest. Let's stop. We don't no. plan on walking away anytime soon. No, it's going back in, doing additional TSI, burning it on solid rotations. That's going to promote the habitat that the wild turkey needs. That Whether it's in the springtime, nesting season, brood rearing, fall, those elements that they need are going to be present. Again, if they're not present, they're going to either go elsewhere or they're just not going to be there, period. And it's like I've heard the whole trapping aspect. And I think Adam – I think Adam's talked to me about it, but I think I've heard it on y'all show too. It's like it's like a, it's like a vacuum effect. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you can get rid of them, but it's, they're going to continue to come there. Uh, and it's just like one of those things that – I'm trying to think who explained this to me. Um, when you have ex, – not even excess, but if you have a large quantity of extremely high-quality habitat for especially, you know, um, nestling and also the brooding habitat – or like early successional plant communities. Absolutely. It's like you're, you're spreading out. You're having so many options for these turkeys to, to nest that there's no true like hot spots that if a coon happens to walk up on, you know, a, a, a hen. Yeah, they probably are still getting a couple nests, but it's not nearly as impactful as this, you know, if it's mostly just open hardwoods and they're well, just trying to find <clears> any <throat> brush. I almost guarantee it. you guys in the last couple of years, no doubt have lost nests well, to guaranteed. predators. One, no, without question. But but turkeys breed and their their nest success is like twenty percent on average for stabilization. Like they're gonna be nests that get lost even in good quality habitat, mm-hmm. regardless. And, and in the same sense, there are going to be nests that hatch in terrible habitat. Uh-huh. I mean, you can have. I mean, and and I think it, I think it was was it Dr. Chamberlain or Dr. Collier that they brought up the point that that hens don't necessarily seek out the best nesting cover. Yep. They yep. they're kind of plastic, and they're on the landscape and just kind of like, oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah. I got a nest. <laughs> I got to drop an egg, and they and they start a nest there. So like, you can have hens hatch have successful nests in closed canopy timber, mm-hmm. but the problem is. Where is the nearest brooding habitat for them after they hatch? Well, real I mean, quick, can you explain brooding habitat? Because we keep talking about that. And mm-hmm. There's probably a lot of people that, I mean, it's probably like a it's, new term. I don't know if you want to uh, jump brood in. Brooding habitat is or generally herbaceous, not not super thick ranked. Like there's a component of bare ground into high quality brood rearing cover. So chicks can navigate. There's overhead cover right from the plants that are growing so it's kind of like an umbrella shape 
uh, shaped plant, generally think weeds, right? Ragweed, um, desmodium, pokeweed, where they're underneath, protected from aerial predators, but those plants themselves are attracting insects, and those insects is now the diet for um, the poults to be and, able to and, you grow know, fast, When rapidly. they're in that phase, too. You, you don't find that in closed can- canopy timber. They're either. not able to stay dry as well. So they're like downy little puffballs. They get wet. They can't thermoregulate either. So the better you are, your habitat is at them staying dry. You look at like, mm-hmm. say, a fescue pasture. They walk through that. They're going to get soaked. Cool they, spring mornings, like, or, or, or cool heavy summer dew. mornings, heavy dews. Yeah. It's, it's like literally that. And uh, people don't consider that. But like, even if you have, if, if you don't have any predators, um, like a, a skunk or a possum, um, or a coyote on the landscape, poults are still going to die. Nests are still going to get predated on, on by things such as, um, snakes and then the raptors, like they're still going to kill turkeys. They're still going to die. But then environmentally, they're still going to die from getting wet and not being able to thermoregulate if the habitat is poor. So like it, it just just saying, oh, let's get all the predators. That's not necessarily the solution because they're all, there's still other things and factors that are going to unfortunately kill turkeys. And, and that's where you see the importance of these fresh, fresh prescribed burns. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the, just the nature of those, they're generally open underneath with a lot of weed component to them but it's it's bare ground for a poult to move around they're not in a bunch of weeds they're not in a bunch of stuff and getting wet they can move around freely in that in that system so like think of a, a quail chick we're taking a step back and talk about quail for a second but when they're hatched they're bumblebee sized oh they're oh, that wow. small their eggs are small so mm-hmm. like yeah. so so think about that and Try it just for like 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Think about what they would, what their world would look like from their perspective once they're hatched. Tell me what's suitable in the landscape for them. Well, and the, the, other, the other benefit too to opening up the canopy and allowing sunlight in. Think about us when you're, when you're walking around like, it's been cold here the last couple of days. You walk around outside. Are you warmer when the sun's shining? I mean, even if the temperature's the same, are you warmer when the sun's shining on you? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you think about some of those cold, wet spring mornings, a turkey in a closed canopy timber system. It's, it's, not, it's not ideal. It's not good. Well, and, all right. So think about that. Even if they don't perish, right? Energy consumption to try and maintain a certain body heat, they're expelling a lot of energy into just their overall fitness as an individual. That is then not necessarily spent foraging, growing, getting faster to be able to fly, putting on their new feathers, right? So mm-hmm. it's just a kind of a compounding effect if, well, if our habitat was in place, they had more sunlight, yeah. they had maybe a breeze through the canopy, right? We, Two, that's going to help dry them off faster we all, as well. We all love to hunt those those sunshiny hours right after a rain comes through because you oh. know the turkeys are coming to the fields. <sighs> <laughs> I mean, oh. and they get fired up when oh. the sun shines on them and warms them up. I mean, you think the same thing with a lot of... Well, you see that in adult turkeys. Yeah. I mean, that's, you think that's of very commonly something seen. where it's very important to, to warm up. It's, it's crucial. And then on top of that, with the diversity in plant species and diversity of insects, the more, 
human concept, and I'm not a great example because I'm about the pickiest, plainest eater of anybody. <laughs> but they need that diversity. Yeah. The quicker the turkeys can grow to get into a tree or into a shrub, and the quicker they can grow, the 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 more adept they are at staying warm. You you need that diversity of insects to get them to that. Like, they can't like, just eat the same thing think, and I, expect I, to grow. I want to say, like, for the first two weeks, 90% of their diet is insects. Oh, it's, 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 I think I've heard Dr. Chamberlain say it's like in the first 28 days, they're carnivores. Absolutely. Like, they that, that's nothing. how important insects are. How many, how many insects do you encounter when you're walking through closed campy timber? Not and, many. One, and a, a great example I've heard asked before is think about driving down the road. Like, I can remember as a kid when we drove down the road, you had tons of bugs on the windshield and all over the cars. You don't have near that amount now. Think about a lack of insect. I mean, that's that's something that's crucial to all of our grassland birds right now. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's one of those that one life cycle. One or of another. those con- major contributing factors in the declines of a lot of the grassland birds and a lot of bird species is there is a very we've had a significant decline in insect species. So we we were. We're discussing all this. We should, this is an extremely interesting topic from somebody who, from the outside looking in, you know, has no history. I have no experience doing anything that y'all do when it comes to habitat. But it makes so much sense. As in, there's only so much you can do through just trapping alone. I see so many people just putting so much emphasis on trapping, which, again, is a good thing. Do it. But I don't see them doing a ton of the habitat, or at least some of those people. There, there are some that sure. you know, there are some people that preach trapping and do a ton of habitat work, which is fantastic. But I see a lot of people. It's like trapping is the only thing that they decide to work on, especially on property that they own. It's different again, lease property or whatever, where mm-hmm. you don't have control sure. on the sure. timber rights. But if it's property you own, there's so many things that can be done. Like you said, it's, it's steel before steel that can add way more quality habitat like what we're talking about and make it where the reduction on that predation, not even just on the nest, but on the broods itself once they hatch. If you could take away some of those predators or freaking be able to catch some of those, you know, those uh, poults, then there's potentially going to be make it, there's going to be slightly higher percentage, whether it's 5%, whatever, slightly higher percent that makes it to juvenile to be able to make it to potentially, you know, a mature it's, animal. It's not as fun. I mean, uh, yeah. that it boils down to that. Is it more fun to go out and, and sweat and run a chainsaw and get, I mean, coated and get scratched all over in briars or to go out and try to call in some coyotes? Mm-hmm. Or call in coyotes or hop on the UTV and drive and run the tra- and trap line. Mm-hmm. Again, there's, there's, we're not saying that trapping is bad or that you shouldn't do it, but you shouldn't do it spite well, habitat. And you guys just did a... We like did a predator, a predator series. series, and one of those one of those podcasts was devoted to predator management through habitat management. Mm-hmm. You can do things to manipulate the habitat to to I guess make it less conducive for predators to be on your property. You look at a lot of the landscape, closed canopy timber, and a lot of that stuff. It's it's a great place for growing varmints. You look at a lot of a lot of old trees mature trees hollow cavity den cavity trees tons of those and they they have to be there i mean there's there's like bat species that depend on dead snags but you look at the the woodpeckers percentage of them throughout the landscape and there's tons of them in this over mature overstocked timber Mm. so you have that to where 
your varmints have great places to live and you look across a lot of they haven't done a study on it yet but common sense in my mind tells me you look at the 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 amount of supplemental feeding we do through the winter that's another great point we're we're making a artificial carrying capacity for those varmints and you hear people complain well i've got 30 coons in my corn pile it's like well you're helping them get through the winter by feeding them through the winter yeah, like, like if, if you non-target had, species, yeah, yeah, sure. You put the corn out to attract deer and turkeys, mm-hmm. absolutely. But you're also feeding coons and, and attracting them, but don't complain because literally it's out there free for them to I, be able to take. And and if the habitat was in place, we don't feed. That's I've, the last thing this, on our mind. I've had this conversation with, because with they people get through the winter. Mm-hmm. when I was in Arkansas. I, I had this conversation multiple times because it's very prevalent oh absolutely and I, I i had the conversation why don't you go run a chainsaw why don't you do this or they would have feeders out well, i'm just helping my deer get through the winter i'm like is the winter really that bad here <laughs> and they're like well but you know and I'm like your timber is closed canopy your food is very limited you can offer a benefit to the deer far more than your varmints by cutting trees they're going to find We've got videos multiple times of the deer finding finding treetops within the hour of like the After time that we leave. Stops, cameras in place. You drop it and they're in there. They're on there, it, there within the buds an hour. And everything. Like before dark, they are there eating on those buds. Because like dog, dogwood buds are 18% protein. I mean. And, and that's a high, high protein during a time frame where they're not necessarily seeking and needing protein. Mm-hmm. They're needing energy. But that's why there's so much preference for them because they can kind of. Get both out of it. But He's, what, what's there for a coon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a coon's not going to eat yeah. buds on a dogwood, right? No. So it's like when you when you start doing that, you're you're putting more resources available to those farmers <laughs> that you're trying to. Yeah, and, and and I'm I I'm not pointing or singling people out on this, but it has to be said because it it drastically changes the landscape in the wintertime. But like, look at. Um, southeast we've got arkansas mississippi georgia all which you can bait alabama um but when you put that many hunters on the landscape and and so many hunters timber properties recreational properties and everyone has corn feeders and and piles of bait that 100 percent changes the 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 dynamic of what's there animal wise and when it's highly sought after by a raccoon. Well, yeah, you're feeding the raccoons. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you're part of the problem, but you're part of the problem. If that food wasn't there, there probably wouldn't be that as many coons. And they certainly wouldn't be congregated in a certain area around your bait site. You're attracting them to that same location. It, inadvertently just creating uh, like the best place ever yeah, for a coon yeah. to live. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, actually, just it's a side note, but something I've seen... Some of these areas uh, where there's alligators down, like South Alabama, South Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, same thing. There's been I've seen images recently because you have all these different species that are coming to this bait pile of gators. Actually, oh, gators staking out. As, on as it. A, have you all seen some of the photos and videos from this past season? No, I'd no. love to. I've got some stuff to send you, dude. There's one I, I post on the Run and Gun page on our Facebook group, and it is a time lapse image of a gator which would learn how to condition or through i guess classical conditioning 
just learned that if it sat underneath his feeder, hogs were going to come. If it sat still, sure. it could grab a hog. And it has images. There is a ton of it. If it's snapping at, I mean, grabbing a hold of hogs and it's killing one way hogs. to take care of your hogs. Well, wow. but, it's, but it's like, what else is coming to a feeder that's potential? Now, that's not an issue for a lot of places, but they're learning. Well, and, and, same and thing you know, predators, they're there because of their frequency of that food supply. And predators like coyotes and bobcats mm-hmm. learn the same thing. Oh, yeah. They know when the prey frequent an area and they figure it out mm-hmm. and and that's what it's if we discuss predators you have to look at all, all the, the whole realm of of ways to reduce their numbers mm-hmm. it's like rather than just trapping it's like how how else can we go about reducing their numbers and or reducing their effectiveness that's the other thing you you do with habitat wise you're spreading out this habitat so they're not as effective of hunters which brings up another thing that I think would be interesting, especially when you start dealing with coyotes, which you said coyotes are not really developed in, to like hunting scot, hunting style to target specifically turkeys, especially the, like mature turkeys. Yeah, if they come across the right situation. Op- opportunities. Yeah, or, yeah they're going to take advantage of that for sure. Like the, we, we, we're not saying that at all, but that's just not their, their staple component of, of forage at all. They are focused heavily on rodents, rabbits. Yeah. Like the Lagomorph family. What's the uh, what's the effect of on their on your rodent and and like rabbit species? What's their what's the effect on their population when you do a lot of the habitat management we're talking about? <laughs> oh, through the roof. There's, so, an, there's an understory. There's forage. There's cover. And and rabbits, I think they're they're pumping out three litters a year, twelve to fifteen, or and, plus or minus some mice. Uh, bowls yeah. mm-hmm. and, and we've all seen rabbits in our food plots they're stupid like you can walk <laughs> right up on them they just kind of hop out of there man you've you never think- seen it with a beagle behind them dude you be quick shooting that pond thicket son but then like you think about that as a as a coyote or a bobcat yeah what are you oh, gonna, bobcats what are you gonna don't eat? pounce all over that puppy, right? We get pictures all the time. Yeah, coyotes or bobcats carrying yeah, squirrels and, and right, rabbits yeah. by our cameras. We refer to them as buffer prey, mm-hmm. right? Like it's a it's a sacrificial lamb that that as a benefit, a byproduct of quality habitat, you will produce more, and that will. I guess the other component to all that, you're gonna pr- produce more of them. So the encounter rate for a predator, let's say bobcat coyote their encounter rate for those species is going to be higher when they're on the landscape more, right? That's just easy. But huh. then on top of that, energy-wise, that they're going to have to expend to encounter more of them or kill one mm-hmm. compared to that of a deer or a turkey, drastically different as well. And also, see, I wonder what, and this is, there's probably no study, I don't know how you'd be able to test this. What is the landscape carrying capacity of like rabbits and mice and voles per square acre when you have that successional growth, especially when it's been managed with fire and everything, compared to ah, that off the landscape, and there's a great, great question. I don't know, but, yeah, but no it'd be idea. interesting, like what, what the density is. Millions. Because, <laughs> <laughs> it would seem like listen. One I've gone rabbit hunting sometimes, and dude, you see mice like literally oh, shooting out of the grass, the like, well, they're sitting there, yeah. like, and you're just like, that's the stuff that they're eating, which, like you said, is a buffer prey. And you got to think if it's more, if they're more likely to come across that kind of you know prey species. You're talking for a bobcat or, or a coyote. They're going to go after that because it's a lot easier to work for it than, you know, go after, you know, one of these larger animals or, again, get after a brood of turkeys, uh, which I wanted to bring up just real quick. Also, with a bobcat, if you have this successional growth, early successional growth in an area that, again, being managed by fire and everything else, you also have all the songbirds. And bobcats don't care what they're eating. If they get catch of a bird and there's a bunch more birds out there. Now, now for the bird watchers, 
you know, it is what it is. But for us, you know, hunters, you know, if they're going after non-game species, you know, hey, there's a win too because there's more of those out there. Oh, yeah. So We, we actually – so I used to rabbit hunt a, a ton, and there was a state place that we hunted that had so many rabbits because of, it was a ton of, like, diverse native on the landscape, diverse native grasses and, and, and forbs. But you would see shrubs – shrub pockets where there were so many rabbits that they were girdling them you could see the chew marks eating all the, over the, the bark like they would eat the bark oh wow so like and that, those were the places that when we would turn the beagles loose the beagles would run in a straight line because they just kept jumping rabbits like you would <laughs> they would jump them and jump them and like you would be kicking them trying to get in front of the rabbits to kill one in front of the beagles and jumping them up at your feet and we now were, Jacob's going to spend some time in Jacob's Missouri. Like, I'm going. <laughs> you, you get a GPS coordinate, man? <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, drop me so that pin. <laughs> when, we were, when we were burning here a couple weeks ago, I was I was in Light and Interior, and I, I told – I can't remember if it was you that I, I came out or me. Colby. I'm like, I was finding rabbit girdlings on some of the shrubs down in there. I'm like, we've got a lot of rabbits down in here right now. Call the beagles, baby. That's oh, what, I, I ain't trying to bop myself, but, you know, we're going to do a rabbit. We you know, know some guys with some good you know, dogs. Go to the old Keith family farm and do a little rabbit hunt. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be against it. <laughs> That's right. We've got a bunch of them. That was the first on there. We've we've had food plots on the farm this past summer that was seeing five or six at a time in, in each. In oh, like One really? of the food plots I walked in, and I'm like, there's five rabbits in this food plot with me right now and and that that's fiasco right yeah yeah and that so that food plot on top of it is surrounded by edge feathering mm. surrounded by a recent cedar cutting then then um two prescribed fires dormant season and growing season within the past two or three years hmm yeah. you start connecting the dots it just it all adds up like it's not something it's it's very common for us as humans to try and just be like very linear in our thinking and be like, well, if I I know that predators will will take turkeys and and predate on them when they're on the nest and then the poults like, we all admit that we see that. So if I remove predators, then there'll be less predation. You're not incorrect. You're are we right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we have to think of it beyond this linear like dot connection. This thought equals this thought. Nah, not all the time and then when you add the the component of time and you as a resource and availability are we having the impact that we really think we are no because the the dynamic of predators on the landscape in relation to prey and in relation to habitat so much more complex than this linear line of thinking there's a web that's going on here and our time is spent on habitat is going to impact that dynamic greater in favor of prey species such mm-hmm. as wild turkeys rather than trapping. It's very dynamic. That's the way I look at it now. It's it like, is. It's not It's not a black or white situation. It's yeah. very dynamic, and there's so many different things can, that can be done, and some have bigger impacts than others, but it's like there's multiple things that need to be done in order to make this, you know, a, a thoughtful, first of all, management strategy plan, but also if you are going to put those excess, you know, prey buffer prey species on the landscape you've got to do certain things to give those turkeys and, and quail a chance and then also your fawns too i've got a thought real quick and you guys may get some hate mail both of you because <laughs> i'm, the I'm most the, of you. I, I, <laughs> something that i i get a kick out of is seeing people in areas of very very high deer densities focusing on coyote hunting and preface it well saving fawns and you're like is that really 
that important? Like they're doing the job that you as a, as a deer hunter are not doing like your deer herd is way out of control. Shouldn't you be focusing more on knocking the deer population down? That's in, what in we relation, a correlation to what the carrying capacity. We, we hunted is. a place in Kansas where the the landowner was like, "Don't shoot any coyotes." He's like, "Until I think that the deer numbers are where they should be, don't kill coyotes. I don't want anybody to kill a coyote." Now he's a farmer with obviously crops and resources, right? Yeah, but yeah. but his line of thinking was, "Yeah, that makes sense." Like there, the number of deer that would stack onto this place was unreal, and and out of hand, but. Why, right, why why focus on trying to kill coyote, kill coyote, kill coyote, and your deer density is just through the roof. You know, See, like, how many guys do you hear of who are like, I, I got to kill 60 does off my place this year. I got to, yeah, or yeah. they can't kill enough does. Yeah, yep. we were, we, and ours, uh, <laughs> our numbers are a lot lower than most. We, we're trying to you're, be proactive. Get ahead of the curve. We know that in response to all this habitat work, our deer population is going to explode. So we're trying to jump on it now well, when we only have to kill 10 or 15 does compared to before we 30 go oh, down oh, this rabbit hole oh, so much I, d- I just want to preface real quick i get to go next by the way <laughs> <Sorry>. go ahead <laughs> some, people, <laughs> draw stra- draw yeah. straws. So some people might hear that and they're like well you did all this habitat work and you say your deer population is about to explode why would you want to stop that like more deer that sounds awesome can you explain oh, like the, the, you, the t- detriments you... i got it <laughs> can you explain the detriments of having too many deer on your property. So, and Matt may want to jump in too, since he hasn't. I'll let you take a, a first lot, swing, and I'm coming in right behind so, him. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your question? No, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> so he did it to me earlier. Yeah, we funny. are trying to be proactive to keep our numbers lower, not just because of the available food. We also, I don't, I don't know how many people like to I, I love hunting late season I love hunting the cold I, I have a lot of luck in like the last week or two of, of Missouri season which is January 15th um, if you hunt that time of year you watch and see how bad social stress affects deer you see those doe groups come out and and clear a field three times in one night <laughs> mm-hmm. And when you're in late season where you have, they're, they're already stressed. In our area, we do get cold enough that food can be limited. If they're coming into these food plots or fields or something, all it takes is that one stupid doe that blows at every wrong wind that mm-hmm. thinks something's wrong and the whole field clears. So you look at deer that are clearing the field three or four times and we have that many more deer on the landscape, not to mention when you have that many more deer your rut is extended and you're having bucks that are chasing does through december through january through february even to where it's i mean what was it was it you guys that had the person send you the picture of the fawn that was born like yeah we had one crazy crazy like where it would have been bred in march in like oh wow not in the south and so you look at that added stress and it's so if we can keep our deer numbers in check all of those stress factors are limited more to where our bucks are able to express their potential far greater uh, the, the social stress dynamic is something that unfortunately there's not like a ton of research on free-ranging deer that we can like say point to from a from a qualitative standpoint like this does this but we can just 
all, all uh, let's say, agree that, right, you have more deer in the landscape, and they're a social animal within, within the herd, but that is going to put added, even if your carrying capacity is higher with all the habitat improvements, more stress because you're packing more individuals into a certain area. They're congregated, attracted to those, those certain areas. So, like, more rut uh, extremes, right? That, that's more energy expelled. So, that's leading into going into a winter food supply. Uh, well, we want those bucks getting the biggest, right? So, we're, we're going to make sure there's not social stress added into the equation of um, their body condition going into winter, through winter, and coming out of winter. So, if you want individual fitness so that each deer or each turkey to be the healthiest it can be, your habitat's here, and I know people can't see this, but my right hand is a little bit higher, which is habitat meter, mm-hmm. and your population is below that. Mm-hmm. So there's ample, there's above, there's, there's, there's more than enough habitat to support deer. And so we'll see reproduction rates climb very rapidly in deer populations with the intensity of work that you guys are doing there. Like it's not going to take five years. We're talking two and three years for reproduction rates to really jump. And And, and then it's hard to get ahead of that game. We were lucky to be, I guess now we can say we were lucky as kids, as kids, we were like, this is terrible. We've got to find other places to hunt because our deer numbers were so low that now we're coming into where we're not behind the scale already where we're having to kill a pile of deer and we're like seeming to work ourselves to death just trying to manage the herd ours is just good right now to where it's like if we can stay on top of it and and actually knock the numbers down and keep them in check we don't have to have those years where it's like uh we are what are we going to do with all of these deer Mm mm-hmm like an, another thing, and I'm going to open up uh, the can, maybe even larger with this comment. But a lot of people are, well, you know, I, I get it. You know, there's coyotes and stuff like that, but they're just they're they're messing up the social stress, right? They're, they're just, I see they're pressuring pressuring the deer. Sure, that that can happen, definitely. But when we're talking about stress on populations, what's a what's a bigger stress? Because like I guess I should preface that like most people want bigger deer, right? Bigger antlers. Ever, that's what everyone's pretty much after, right? So if that is your main focus of your property to a buck, what is the biggest competitor on the landscape? Is it the coyote or is it a doe? Because last time I checked, 150-pound deer is eating 2,000 pounds of food annually, and they're competing for the exact same food resources that a buck is, right? So if you have these crazy high deer numbers – well, then that food's just going to be consistently that competition for that resource. It's a doe who's who's having the bigger impact here. And so if you're out of balance or you have super high numbers, we need to shift that back down. So like who's really impacting? And I'm, I'm saying we're getting very technical here and the whole like management, deer management side of things. If your goal is trophy deer, that doe sitting next to that, deer that buck in the field is consuming those exact same resources on the landscape not not and, necessarily that coyote and as far as the social stress with the coyotes we're also that also ties into the habitat management side of it where our deer feel way more comfortable they feel safer because they have cover 
they have like they're escaped. not walking through timber where it's you can see 200 yards through the timber it's like no like yeah that's there's here's a here's a 50 yard swath but there's literally four foot of vegetation they're, in uh, the understory that deer cruising around during day like like they're, they're not, just comfortable <laughs> it's comfort they're not bedding on a hillside of a big patch of mature cedars where from from three foot down you can see for 150 yards mm-hmm. but that's the only cover they have because nobody walks in that ours we will have better cover around to where they when they bed down it's stuff where they stand up and they can see they can sit where they're they they're using the thermals they're using that kind of stuff to their advantages but they're hidden all right so there's there's so much here all right listen i've I, I, <laughs> been about to burst at the seams <laughs> all right with this okay so much here there's so much here i'm, I'm excited so a couple things I want to play devil's advocate. Yeah. But before I had to play devil's advocate, growing up, and I was talking to Alabama, I got into hunting through one of my uncles. And um, he was very much, an, he was a huge proponent of, let's find, you know, he was always in hunting clubs and he was trying to find a hunting club with a ton of deer. Oh, man, there's a ton of deer. And his mindset, and a lot of listeners probably listen to this podcast too, which this could piss people off. If that's the case. I mean, that's fine as long as they're learning something. Um, his thought was, and this is what I think a lot of people's thought is, if there's a ton of deer, there's a higher odds for a quality buck if there's a ton of deer, okay? And more opportunities at a quality buck if there's a ton of deer, his thought process. And, oh, it's always fun to go see a bunch of deer. You sit in a field, you see 20, 30 deer in one hunt. And this is in Alabama and Piney Woods. That's appealing, right? Yeah, oh, it's a, yeah. Good, it's a good time. It's like a and zoo. That, and that's why people struggle with knocking the deer numbers down is because it's – who wants to go and not see a deer? So, so it's, have, it's cooler to see 15 – then five or six. Mm-hmm. Well, I had this conversation with him this year because that's what they've been doing on their club. Uh, is a lot of guys were really hammering the does, and he was upset. And this is, he's a, now he's in a a club that's producing some extremely high quality deer for Central Alabama. You know, produce one hundred and sixty plus inch deer, creme de la creme. And it's, yes. <laughs> oh man! But like he's he was getting upset, and he's like, man, I don't know if I'm going to be back in the club because there's guys hammering does. And I'm like, well, what's the I'll issue? I'll get in that club. Uh, hold on a second, son. <laughs> hold on a second. Uh, make sure this spot for you um and he was upset because guys are hammering does he's like you know you'll go on hunts and you might see one or two deer and a lot of guys i think feel that way just looking from the outside looking in to this conversation is well i don't want to go out there and you know we kill say i don't know percentage wise what you might kill off a farm if you're trying to lower deer numbers so there's yeah. got to be a certain percentage that you have to take because of reproduction right um but which is habitat related ab- your abs- reproduction right absolutely right. absolutely but this property that he hunts, it has a ton of um, uh, early sessional growth. It's mm-hmm. beautiful habitat. It's got a – they're like thick nasty. I'm like, there's so much good stuff going on here. But the guys – anyway, that's their hammer does, but they're killing these huge bucks. And there's like so much quality food on the on the landscape. And I had a very long conversation with Adam. I know y'all are probably about to jump in. Listen, this is my turn to talk, guys. All right, hold on a second. <laughs> I, I got to hear my own voice for a second. I got to hear my own Jack voice. I love his own voice. <laughs> so me and Adam had a very long conversation going to Iowa and he brought this up is if you if you're trying to have higher quality bucks and express that full potential you have to have excess food on the landscape and and less again like you said with the rut stress to give him the most amount of time to be able to put on the most amount of weight to then you know be able to put on his antler growth as well and lowering those deer numbers 
is like, oh man, well, I'm not going to see so many deer, but it has the opportunity to have higher quality bucks on that same property that, you know, maybe before you were seeing 20 does a sit, which is crazy in Alabama. I know some guys that see way more than that and they're trying to kill 40, 50 does off a property. They probably need to kill a hundred does mm-hmm. off a thousand acres or more or more than that, to be right. honest. And you just have so many people when they hear you like, oh man, we got to hammer the does back and up the quality of the habitat. They're like, well, I don't want to do that. I want to see more deer. It's about, you know, I, I see that on social media all the time. It's like, I, I want to see more deer, more deer, higher deer, just all the deer numbers are dropping. But it seems like those areas with those lower deer numbers produce some of the best quality bucks, especially when we talk Alabama, Bankhead National Forest is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's an area where these deer have to cover a lot of distance and the deer numbers are really low deer density wise. But there's enough food out there that some of these bucks are getting to over 200. I mean, there's deer so that can kill a record o- out of there every o- couple of years. Over 200 inches and, you know, produce a 190-inch buck every couple of years. There, there's yeah. another component in all of that that really is kind of where the rubber meets the road in that. So we didn't talk about age. Mm-hmm. So, so we talked about deer density and we talked about forage availability. If a club is hammering does but allowing their bucks to get to four and a half and five and a half before harvesting, they're going to be hammering some really big deer. Like that, that's an ideal situation. Compare that to another club that goes and hunts that property and they're not killing as many deer. Um, you would want more bucks, more deer on the landscape. Excuse me, I, I, I messed that up. If they're not being as selective on the age class, right? You would want more deer on the landscape to give a higher percentage opportunity for bucks to try and get through some of that harvesting to get to reach that older age class. But once you, that, that's, that's a numbers game, a probability game that if you have more on the landscape, then some will get through to reach that maturity if that club is harvesting two and three and four year olds and five year olds. But if you have a club. <laughs> who is harvesting only four and five-year-olds. You don't need that population size to get them through that harvesting rate, right? So if we're selective on age, you can hammer those and give all those resources two bucks because you know, regardless, your bucks are getting to maturity. Mm -hmm. And that other situation, you're going to want to kind of buffer some of that, uh, I'm not going to say excess harvest, but maybe harvesting of bucks at a younger age. Mm -hmm. You're going to want to have a few more in the landscape to still have and have some of those get through the, 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 the guys who are liking to shoot the two and three year olds, some to get through to reach the four and five year old. Does that make sense? Yes. And it brings up a question. So this is my devil's advocate aspect is, Oh man, okay. We hammer all these does. Well, now the rut's going to suck because man, we kill the does and that's what brings Mm -hmm. the bucks. What, what y'all thought? Uh, you, you, if you've dropped your doe numbers down, you're going to see a more intense rut. Totally. I, I have heard stories of, of people in like Iowa and Northern Missouri in, was it 2012 where there was yeah. a huge EHD outbreak that saw one of the, some of the most intense ruts for years after that because their doe numbers were knocked down to where the bucks actually had to seek out does. If Pursue, you have, chase. If you have if you have a ton of does, you think about the bucks don't have to work hard to find the next doe that's in estrus, so they can jump back and forth, and and you're not seeing that movement. If your doe numbers are lower, your bucks are starting to seek them out. And you said lower, not necessarily low, mm-hmm. to see that increase. And, and go back to the predators, right? 
if there's more buffer prey on the landscape, their encounter rate of them moving across the landscape, it's going to be higher on the buffer prey, right? Same thing with a buck. He's going to encounter does more frequently if there's a lot more does. So he's he's not going to have to chase as nearly as much. He's not going to have to lock down. Or, or, excuse me, he's going to be able to lock down much faster because he's going to encounter a doe in estrus much quicker mm-hmm. if there's that many more on the landscape. So there's a lot of people who sing the blues of, ah, it's the rut, man. This just blows. Here we are. I'm just going to, I mean. The rut I'm didn't just, happen this year. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, a, that's a situation. Year, man. The class, yeah. I didn't see no chasing, man. Rut didn't happen. Didn't happen. No. You're either hunting the wrong areas. Because it did happen. Mm-hmm. You had really hot weather, and a lot of deer did move at night. Or you have a ton of does, and they're just not nearly having to chase. Or it's a combination of all of yeah. that, right? Or the worst thing, you have all three have them at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. But but let's say adequate, moderate deer numbers. is uh, there's, there's so many pros to that. Um, the only thing that you really sacrifice, I guess, would be the number of deer that you may see on a set. But if you're in the game for really big deer, then your probability and your odds of growing big deer drastically increase when you have moderate deer numbers compared and, to high deer And we're not talking about numbers. knocking the deer population down to like nothing. Correct. It's just keeping it as a healthy number. Well, I mean, right, because we're talking about a, like... There's a fine difference. I mean, there's a pretty big difference in having an overpopulated deer herd to where you're seeing the brows knocked to nothing you're having no regeneration because the deer numbers are so high that they're eating everything or a healthy number of deer where you're still seeing deer while you're hunting but you're not to the point of being overpopulated a couple questions on this topic and i don't need to say a couple questions because it'll be three questions in one and then you know we won't be able to get them all answered but out of y'all, the states that y'all worked in and regions, where have you seen like some of those higher deer densities where you're like, oh, my, like this is like a serious problem where you went out there and you could visually see that like mm. this is like the biggest issue out here right now is there is way too many deer. Maryland, Pennsylvania, parts of Virginia, and then parts of the the southeast. And you, you see that in a in a lack of forest regeneration. Very clearly, like th- those areas you guys have said, you s- you see visible browse lines, where I mean, yeah, it's beyond the browse lines where the, yeah. literally there's no understory. Mm-hmm. There, and, and I I'm, I don't mean that like dramatically, but like there's literally no understory present. And we're talking, I, I did deer removal work previous to Land and Legacy in Maryland, and um, th- this is when they're it, it, they're in the yards, they're eating ornamentals, like. It is to a point where we're talking 100 plus deer per square mile, 120, 130, 140 deer square mile packed in to these areas. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's bad. That's real bad. And I would I would say, honestly, and this is a very broad, broad statement, but most people habitat wise, if they were somewhere in the 50 to 65, 70 deer square mile and there have quality habitat to support that they would be very very happy hunters i'm not I, there's a lot that are higher than that the, the 50 and, and to 60 deer per square mile yeah. i feel like that's a huge number maybe that's just me thinking uh, really yeah I, I don't know i mean uh, we've asked our dnr uh or chuck sykes uh, mm-hmm. overseas alabama and um 
just what are some of those deer densities and they have no idea because they have no way to serve they have no way to fly and do winter like yeah. surveys and yeah, stuff yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. way to do yeah, it they could no. have snow no well it's like so they're they guess and they have a, an idea in some areas but a lot of it's based off you know travel or like you know, crash reports and hunter reports and trail cameras and all that stuff so there's no way no really no reason to really figure that out how do y'all go about surveying a property when it comes to like potentially how many deer y'all are trying to figure out are on said property using trail cameras or whatever? Is there any yeah. way, ac- is there any accurate way that a landowner can f- try to figure out what his deer density is on his property? You can do trail camera surveys and there's, there's go to NDA National Deer Association, type in trail camera survey and it will, it will basically give you the steps to be able to take to be able to pretty accurately computate what is, what you're seeing on the landscape. Um, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination and it's going to vary depending on the season that you do it whether it's late summer or um, postseason before before shedding you have to have bucks having unique antlers on their head that that's how it's done that's how it's completed that's um probably your best most accurate way right now um but what the numbers let's say i threw out right there Mm -hmm is an average mm-hmm. right and and so we've been fortunate to like work in a bunch of different areas where we knew we had firm data and so like maybe we'll go into a site and just generically say not like i want to say not accurately but like not pinpoint you have 30 deer per square mile mm-hmm. it is okay based on the the sign that i've seen based on the browse pressure um you're probably falling into this general category of deer per square mile try and bring it back a little bit more to kind of this uh successional habitat or early successional habitat that chad you and adam are doing on the farm and have been doing have y'all noticed especially with y'all's line of work not even us on the farm but just in general a reduction in a buck's core area or home range mm-hmm. with a thousand ex- percent okay with oh like, yeah so, so, so let's talk so about that just for just for reference like on our farm <clears throat> We, and we run more cameras than we did then, but we could generally count on, even when we had a decent amount of cameras on the family farm, a buck picture at most once a week, like of, of a target deer, which was very slim. And a lot of times those, it, it was a target deer that was, would not be a target now, but we would generally get a picture or like he would move through the farm once a week at most. Sometimes it was once every two weeks where it was like we suspected they were making a big wide circle. And like multiple times, I, I remember <clears throat> one of the first mature deer that we got when we started letting them go. We had a deer at four and a half that was not, he was not a big deer. He might have went 115 as an eight point, but we knew he was four and a half. Um, I remember driving to the farm to hunt him and seeing him at least a mile and a half north of the farm cross the road in front of me in the dark. And I'm like, I, I might as well just go back to bed. I'll go fix breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and he was coming towards the farm, though. Like, he was somewhere far off coming back to the farm. And it's we have it to the point, like, we had a deer this past year that – that the the that really nice four and a half year old ten point that he was there i mean we had pictures of him through the rut 
Oh yeah, very we frequently. had it pretty pretty figured out on his range what he was and moving. If you had wanted to kill the deer, you could have gone in and killed the deer. Yeah, but we decide we want to see what he's at what he is at five and a half. Um, the uh, the the deer that Adam talked about on on the podcast when he was on the the one hundred ninety inch deer, he when the rut hit he widened out a little more and some of the neighbors had some pictures of him the rest of that we were pretty certain he was on a single ridge he was living on that ridge he he might have shifted a little outside of that but for the most part that's where he was at if you're going after him you're going to go after him there and i know that's all a lot of it's based off also personality of different deer some some are just slightly more roamers but still that was something I've been always very curious on. It's like when you have that much higher quality habitat and also I'm sure doe family groups are even tighter than in those yeah. areas. Cause they don't have to travel so far. They have everything they need in a very small area. And then those bucks again, and you reduce those doe numbers, but then those bucks have such high quality food, but also those does are so comfortable in these areas. It's like, they don't have to go very far to get everything that they need. Don't have no. a reason to leave. And, yeah. and that sounds like cliche, it's not mm-hmm. like we, we see that happen um and it, it, yeah sure it's property size dependent but you can 100 percent change the way deer utilize a landscape by offering different plant communities by manipulating the habitat by arranging it in a certain way that will help shrink down their core area right i mean we, we i i I'm going to tell the story as vaguely as possible. We had a client who had a really nice deer show up, like really, really nice. Um, blitzed this area with cameras, and the deer was, he never got a picture of him outside of like this 40. This Iowa deer. Acre, yes. This 40 <laughs> acre area. I know the story. Area, right? It's, it's very interesting. And that was through the entire summer. Mm-hmm. And there's obviously. It's a large farm, but mm-hmm. there's lots of cameras around that area, but they kind of blitzed them. And it was frequent just day after day after day after day, right there in here, in, in this in this area. Um, second time in, kill a deer in October in the epicenter of that 40-acre block. We had gone in there a year, two years ahead of time, done quite a bit of work, done some burning, giant deer. Mm-hmm dense dense core area go in kill it the second time in and 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 that's interesting i've talked to adam extensively about that and how that property sets up and it's just interesting out of that whole property that was that spot that that buck truly was like living at had everything he needed in that one little area which again 40 acres that's nothing but again not 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 for half of a year mm -hmm. or four or five months out of a year the deer killed late October, picked him up in July. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that it didn't leave that 40 acres. They just never had pictures of it. And there was a lot of area um, that they would have picked up that deer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But again, it, it kind of brings back the whole idea of just how these tweaks to your property, which again, you're putting in effort. And again, it's, it never, it's never ending because again, no. especially with the fires, prescribed fires and keeping up with all your invasives and everything else that's happening potentially on a property. But just how effective this can be as a long, especially a long-term goal, but also have short-term effects as well, positive effects. Quickly. Which, quickly. which I want to 
and I, and that's what mm-hmm. I was thinking. Do you, do you want us to? Do you mean to touch on some of the some of the practices we're doing on the farm? Yeah, like cause, cause, some okay. of the stuff that some of the many things because it's like <clears throat> we can say, oh, we're thinning the canopy, mm-hmm. but you know, for the most part, through the whole timber area, we are thinning the canopy, and essentially a lot of it, some of it's thicker than others. We left the south and west facing slopes. We ha- we hit them harder. Those are generally more open. They're drier. Um, the north and east slopes, we left a little thicker. Those have, for the most part, most of the time, they have more white oak on them. But I walked ahead of the logger and marked leaf trees. Um, so some of it's more like a seed tree. Mm-hmm. It's it's very open. It, it got hammered hard. Some of it we left thicker because there were better trees in there. Um, we did that pretty much over the whole timber area. Then... In choice areas, because this is very hilly country, um, there's a lot of saddles, a lot of terrain to use in hunting. That's what, before we could ever do any timber management, that was how we hunted. You hunted only terrain features, not terrain features in conjunction with quality habitat. So we already, with that, we already had a pretty good idea of the general deer movement. Mm -hmm. Then we went in and in choice locations had the logger... We painted in clear cuts, which were are going to be our bedding thickets, our smaller bedding thickets, in the in these choice locations to hopefully predict where the deer would bed. We'll go in and do some other stuff in those areas, and and maybe burn in in ways that we don't burn those as hot, so there's a little more woody vegetation. We'll go in. And some of them, the logger didn't cut everything. We'll go in and cut, and we'll actually do some hinging in those areas. We, I, and I, we I, prefer, I want to specify this real ahead. quick. Clear cut to some of your listeners. We're not talking forty acre, hundred acre clear cuts like mm. they may see in a, in a in a lease down south, mm. or just what they would commonly see driving across the road. These are at most, at most like three acres, but many of them are like an acre to an acre and a half. And, and so then and so if the logger pinpointing, hasn't pinpointing where those yeah. deer are is very, very hunting. Yeah. It's not, it's not very like easy. huge bedding areas. These are a couple acres and then we'll go in. I like to stump like flush cut or coppice cut where we cut it all the way off because you have a lot of that stump sprouting. Mm-hmm. Multi stems you know, coming the, out. The Mississippi State Deer Lab oh, mineral yeah. stump stuff. You have that kind of stuff. And then we also do hinge some. Which dogwoods, our, our timber is full of, our mid-story is full of flowering dogwood. We have tons of them. So they end up being a lot of our managed, a lot of our like TSI work is cutting mm-hmm. dogwoods. But we'll, they hinge really well and stay alive for a long time. So we'll throw some of the hinging in there, some of it cutting, and and have that where there's a little more woody cover in those choice bedding thickets. So then... You can have the deer moving through those saddles. Now now it's more predictable because they're moving like in the rut. They're going through and checking those bedding thickets, checking for does. Well, how are they going to move from one bedding thicket to the other? The easiest way. They're going to cut through those saddles. So then we've also opened up. We've done some um, food plot areas on, on some of the bigger areas, but we also strategically don't place them on the roads so that we can drive through and especially and some of them are on roads i mean we have to drive into them to plant them but our accesses are not going to be there mm-hmm. 
but we have those openings that they do draw deer, but it also naturally forces them to not like daylight movement. You're not going to see as much in there. They're going to skirt the edges of those in between. So we have that in there and now we've thrown some, some wildlife openings or vernal pools in choice areas too, to even more predict the movement. And, and that's just deer wise. Then all of those things add in as factors for the turkeys as well to where you have this more open canopy you have these choice areas that are you have more early successional cover we've got some 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 little bigger clear-cut areas that we did on some ridge tops that a lot of people would plant for food plots we're just going to manage them as herbaceous openings that we're going to manage with fire we're going to just scream fires through those burn them hot but keep them open as just open areas to where like in the spring, the springs that we burn those, it's not even going to be fair for the turkeys. Game set match. I mean, the turkeys are going to strut in those things like crazy. So we're doing that. And then the broods are going to be back in there midsummer when all the weeds are And I guess I I also forgot to mention too, in the benefit of us having a timber background as well. So I was marking the leaf trees. We weren't just, I wasn't just, going through randomly marking leaf trees in certain areas that we have picked that we know the deer movement is going to be good adam and i even went in and discussed tree stand trees Mm -hmm. that i would mark for leaf trees or a cluster of them where it's like that's going to be the tree to hunt let's mark that one as the leaf tree and then they're going to move through here on this bench i know i want to say this and this i guess it's maybe a bold statement or whatever but Going in and marking stands that will be good in three and four years so those trees are preserved, that's how confident we are in saying when you do this work and the vegetation responds and you manage it with fire, herbicide, do the right practices, that tree, which is in a sea of closed canopy forest, thousands of trees, what seems like per acre, Mm -hmm. that tree will be the killing tree. Like it can be that pinpointed that you're and saying in four years it it will be here that it happens so some of the trees that i'm like some of them i would call adam like from the tree i'm like uh you're not gonna believe this one i just found here i mean we've we've walked all over that but there's a difference in walking all over it and then actually marking the trees and like there's one and for instance or, or, or marking it once you've laid out a clear cut. Mm, like yeah. Once you know where that's at and then you know where the food plot or the food plot expansion is in relation to the clear cut that's over on that other route. Like, now you're like, oh, there, here we go now. There, there's, one, yeah. there's, there's one, for instance. I'll, I'll give you the layout of it. So we have a big food plot. Mm-hmm. And to the south of that food plot, this ridge goes out. It was a wide area and it fingers down to a big saddle that the the wind is really unpredictable in that saddle it's very like i used to hunt it a lot because we would get a ton of deer movement through there and you'd sit there and not see a deer and you're like they're smelling me somehow well this finger down fingers down we've done this clear cut to the south of that food plot that we're going to manage with fire it's going to be grown up we're going to plant shrubs it's going to be more more conducive to daylight movement on the very south end of that I found a triple white oak. It was kind of small, but it's enough cover. 
and then also marked three or four three or four big mature white oaks to have them leave within about 40 yards of that tree so if they're dropping acorns you have that deer movement where and we're on the downwind with a north wind we're on the downwind side of that the, the deer move through that they're going to move through on that downwind side we have the acorn component to hopefully suck them in even more so you look at most of those deer you hope are going to travel within 40 yards of that tree stand and that tree is right on the edge of a big break to where when you walk in you walk the road in but you're not seeing across that ridge until the moment you step up to the tree like you're, you're, you're not exposed you just until you get in. to the base of that tree. Yeah, Nothing like knows it. you're there. See, listeners can't see, but y'all can see. I'm smiling over here and like grinning ear to ear. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm drooling at the at this spot, dude. This sounds awesome. But again, it's manipulating the habitat not only for the you know better quality for you know the species, you know the different wildlife species, and talking deer, especially deer in this situation. But you're also coming at it from again. We're gonna kill some deer here. This sounds like a, an awesome spot for the rut pre-rut, especially just being down with those oaks too. When those bucks comes in, scent checking, dude. Sounds like a great spot to put a mock scrape too. I did. It's it'll this be sound, there. It sounds killer, dude. Oh well, my that's, god, that's the thing. Like, yeah. at the heart of it, we want to be successful hunting too. Mm-hmm. Like, ha- healthy habitat is super important, and that's this. The uh, other component is that spatial arrangement of these features, and we want to do it where on any given property that we go and we see we lay it out like i want to walk away knowing okay these are the spots if i were to come here in november man i'm going here 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 and here Mm -hmm. that's the confidence i want to leave the landowner with say man this is going to be the spots this is how we're going to lay it out crush them crush them but hunting is how there's there's no issue with consuming that resource when you've produce that resource mm-hmm. right so if you're out there and you've got the healthy habitat and you're producing turkeys and you've got great deer and they're getting to older age class and they're sporting 150 60 70 inch right consume them mm-hmm. harvest them there's nothing wrong with that but like when you produce them dude it's that much sweeter i, I gotta ask because i'm just curious from y'all's consultant side of everything what is the reaction when you like do these setups for a landowner you put the plan together they execute the plan you have like the spots like dude, this this plan and this part of this execution is going to work perfectly like, you this is going to be one of your target areas to focus on come the rut or at any point of the season and they have success doing that what is that reaction that y'all are getting from some of these landowners so some some of the spots right when you're on site mm-hmm. there it, it, it's just like this is a no-brainer mm-hmm. like 100 this is what we're going to do this is how we're going to do it here's your access blah, blah blah you could you can kind of describe that in the field but honestly, when we're done with the property, walking it or touring it for maybe a day, two days, whatever it is, the whole plan isn't put together yet. So so we, we can't say like, okay, you can hunt here, you can hunt here. You're going to have 14 stands like as we're wrapping up a conversation. It's not like that for us. Maybe other people do it that way. But there is more homework. There is more layout. There is more um, arrangement that needs to be done. You know, we, we need to be maybe making a call to a forester in the air and say, okay, you know, we, we've got this timber component. What are some of the options? Uh, well, we got sawmill here. Okay. Well, now we got, we can manage this site or this block a little bit differently. Now that we can manage it differently, mm-hmm. since I've done more homework and site evaluation, I can hunt this now differently so like 
we paint the picture as much as we can that it's just like 100% clear to us when we show up on site. But honestly, we compile all that in a report and maps and then like schedule of work, ship it back to them. I say ship it. We're not old school. We email it back to them. <laughs> but then they, they read through and digest it. And we have uh, another conference call and coming back through where we're well, talking about hey, remember this site? Mm -hmm. Do you see how it's been developed? And, and your access, look at the map. We've got it shown right here. That's how you're access, accessing the stand. The fourth map is going to tell you which wind to hunt it, but November is going to be your time frame. Like that, that, is, that is on that stand. Then there's other portions of the farms like, dude, this thing just sets up so sweet for October, like mm -hmm. because of this north-facing north, north facing slope, and then you've got its clover. Whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. it's not all right there in person, so... It's more of like this long-term, um, uh, like understanding comprehension. I think is the right word. That holy cow! Like they finally start to get. And they're like, <laughs> I am jazzed up. And you it guys doesn't all happen right there. You, on site. you guys share in our group text. You guys will send some of the text you get from some of the landowners. Yeah, that like, yeah. Like the one was it this year that was an email or text that the landowner was like, you guys should really preface these plans with like. You better count on having free time in the fall because, like, I hunted three times. Yeah. Or, like, it was something like that. The, like, the he, efficiency. he barely hunted and and was tagged out and was like, I, <laughs> I have to find other things to do with my time now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good problem to have. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> it's a, a good, real no good problem, problem to have. Yeah. But that's what I was kind of getting at. It's more so, like, just like when they see, they, they're reaping the benefits of doing a lot of this habitat work and they're seeing like big picture like oh like this is like it's one thing like see the plan it's another thing to execute the plan and then reap the benefits from that plan that's been put yeah. together yeah and it's like that's got to be super exciting not only from you guys and like seeing that success but also from their you know a landowner's perspective like dude this is like this is well worth the time and effort put into it and now we'll be able to focus on this plan and work on this you know for you know future sure. Man, and that's the thing, like, we do this on a daily basis, and there's, like, a lot of professionals out there in their own fields um, who, are, who are landowners, right? They, they don't necessarily manage land every single day, but that doesn't mean that they can't learn, but that's why we have a job, because this is what we do every day, and we're a professional at it, and we write you the management plan, but we just give you the tools to, be go, to go and be successful at it. But, like, if you're a doctor or you own your own business like you can't you can't be perfect at everything mm -hmm. i certainly am not so maybe there's someone out there who can be but but i guess i'm saying like you you may not be the best land manager and that's okay like we we work with some really um high profile people who are like dude forget my ego mm -hmm. like i i just want to make this thing awesome like it there's a little i don't want to say humbling but like it makes no difference. You can be a fantastic hunter. You can be a way better hunter than me. But managing natural resources and killing something, those are two separate things. And, and I think that some, sometimes it's, it's a little different, di difficult for people to separate them. And you could be a fantastic woodsman and know how game move on that property. That's very valuable for me to learn from them. Mm -hmm. But may, they may not have the natural resource management aspect of it that when we combine both of those, Wow, it's really, really good. The product, the end product, is like awesome. Then it just, then it's just a matter of implementing it. Absolutely, done. Fired up. Jacob's <laughs> <laughs> like, how can I it's, get my own? It's property. addicting. Oh yeah. Oh. oh, it is. It's bad. And and that's oh. what like we can talk this stuff for 
days upon days. I mean, we all discuss this back and forth. I mean, Non-stop. most of our conversations are like, hey, I, I just found this today. We need to do this. Or what do you think about this? What do you think about doing this? I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's an ongoing. And that's the fun thing. Like, with, with our job in November, like, yeah, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm out there chasing, hunting, Adam, Chad is doing the same thing. Frank, Kyle, they're out there trying to, to be successful in their own um, hunting time. Mm-hmm. But, man, it's super sweet when those texts are rolling through of people who have implemented things, who have taken – and, honestly, maybe they're 30% through a plan. Maybe they're 50. Maybe they just did 10% of the work, and they're starting to see the benefit of it, and they're like, I see the value. Like, that's added fuel for them to continue to do the habitat management work mm-hmm. and to execute a plan fully. Because like if they're seeing the success at 30, 40, 50% of implementation, it's like, guys, just sit back. Just literally sit back, wait, because at 100%, when this thing is rock and rolling, you're just maintaining it. Oh, it is a well-oiled machine. It's going to operate. Here's the thing. As addicting as it is, the worst thing is, it could be a good thing. You sit in a tree... <laughs> yeah, that's there, true. There's rarely a time that I hunt at the farm that I'm not like, eh. I need to do this. I should... We need to come cut this out. Or, eh. You there's build, a lot of multiflora rows over there. We need to get that taken care of. You build your I mean, to-do list in the tree. You, you, there's not a sit that goes by that you're not sitting there, like, scheming on things that you've got to get done this winter. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it never fails. Every time I sit on the farm, it's like, oh, but that's, boy, that's, I'd really like to get this done. That's the other thing. It's like, we, we phrase it as, like, it's a journey, but... And we work with guys who just bought a, a, a new farm, right? And they have fresh eyes on it. Um, or we work with landowners who have owned a place for 20, 30 years. I just came from a, uh, a large group of folks. They've owned the place for over 100 years. But just seeing it with new, fresh eyes, like, is rejuvenating mm-hmm. for them. Um, and, and, like, that's fun to kind of, like, open their eyes and educate of, what it is they're dealing with, what it is that they are, are seeing on their own property as, as, as like, so if you, if you've owned the property and, um, you've just been hunting it and you haven't been doing this land management, we also see people like utilizing their property year round instead of showing up to put up some cameras in late summer, start hunting it throughout the fall. And then they're piecing out and leaving it and then return during turkey season and then just leave again, right? So if you're owning recreational land, this provides you opportunity to get more enjoyment, to get more usefulness out of that property and owning it. And, and we have a ton of enjoyment in managing it. And, and that extends to a lot of people. And maybe you haven't jumped in um, to that realm yet, but there's, it's, this is so much fun. We even had, like, this, this past winter, one of our buddies that we've had, uh, we have first day of gun season breakfast every year and uh we had we had one of our buddies i, w- I was showing him around and he's like hey uh we were talking about a lot of the plants on the farm and all the stuff and some of the work right off the gravel road and he's like do you so me and my wife he's like we've got a plant id book and we like to explore and, and look and go to the national forest and do that but would would you guys mind if we did that here i'm like how about it man mm. That'd be awesome. Find some cool stuff. 
But it's like that's the kind of stuff that we can do on these places now. It's like, and we we do it, and a lot of times it's it's from the vehicle or from the four wheeler. But we're constantly looking at new plants that we're finding. It's like, oh, I found this. I found this. I found this. And it's like, that's one, like, I've heard it said and explained where, you know, we're losing grasslands. The, the grasslands are, are going fast. And prairies, the, the difference in woodlands and prairies is the prairie system has been, the seedbed is probably eliminated and it, for the most part. And anywhere as far as to restore it. For, because of farming practices. Yeah, it's been plowed, it's been disc, it's been sprayed. The benefit to woodland restoration is that seedbed is laying there. It's just... Still to this day in a lot of areas. It's just choked out, waiting for the chance to go. So that seedbed is just there to where when you do this restoration work, you get to see what that seedbed is going to express. Mm-hmm. And you don't know what's going to come up. There could be... You don't know what kind of rare plant is going to pop up that's just been sitting there. It's, it's, like, just it, been it's like its own like hidden treasure mm-hmm. or or like this time machine where you can go back like restoration-wise and see what this thing really would have looked like pre-settlement if that plant community is intact and you do the right steps to restore that ecosystem. Like this, You're this styling one, things back. This one area we've done the most work on, that's when we're, we're two fires in now. We've done two burns. You and guys a, shared some of the photos mm-hmm. of that same site we, on Adam's podcast. We have already seen a shift in plant species. Like, when you start that restoration work, you tend to have a lot more of the annuals or the biennials and stuff. And as you as you continue the management, you see it shift to more of a perennial, more of the perennial uh, native native forbs and, and wildfires and stuff like that. Shrubs. You'll, you'll see those express more. And we've seen it to where, like, the first year we burned it, we saw a lot. There was a lot of mare's tail, which people plant food plots. They <gasps> lose yes. their minds over it. Oh, it's, it's more mare's tail. <laughs> we didn't care. The mare's tail was there. The it's deer just, ate it. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a year one and two species with burnweed. Like, it's not yeah. going to be here. It's just going to mature out. As we go mm-hmm. on... And some of it was from the, the disturbance of the logging and everything else. We saw a lot of those plants. The next year, we saw a little bit of a shift, but not as much. The next time we burned it, it was like, because we burned it this past, last spring. Mm-hmm. This summer, we're like, I don't, the, the plants look different. And you start looking, it's like, there's more woodland sunflowers in this now. It used to be all like black-eyed Susans. For the most part, there was a time when it was almost, it's like, there's more woodland sunflowers in here. There's more of this species. There's more of this. You saw a shift and it's like, so what's going to happen three, two, three, four burns down the line? Like that puts us at close to 10 years. What what are we going to see then? And we've got some like rarer plants that have already shown up for like, what what else are we going to see in here? You literally don't know. It's kind of like opening Pandora's box a little mm. bit. It's like... Oof. And that's can what, make like, projections, this, but this whole area that we've done all this, we're doing all this work on, we're like, what, what are we going to see on the rest of this? So, and like, we've done some glade restoration work where it, the, the results are just amazing in one year, but it's like, what's going to happen three or four years down the line? What are we going to see in this thing? Uh, I gotta put time this will tell. I got yeah, time will tell. I gotta put this out there right now. All right, guys, we're gonna have to have y'all back on the podcast. I feel like it's gonna be, it's, it's, it's gotta be at least a monthly show. We're gonna call it the land. We're gonna call it the land legacy rant. 
and we're just gonna we're gonna hit whatever <laughs> hits us, dude. And we're just gonna run with it. And you're gonna, gonna, one, you're two, gonna need three. to switch me out with Adam, though. Oh, well, no, we'll you, have gonna, you'll dude. have to jump in him, him cool. in on the on the ranting. He likes I'll to have rant. To have a he's good. He's a good ranter. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah. No, but listen, I appreciate you all spending some time with us this week. Especially, you know, we've done two episodes with you guys, and it's been an absolute blast. And uh, it's interesting to kind of see for. I attempt to see into y'all's world of kind of what y'all do on a daily basis from someone that has no experience doing it and seeing like there is a huge benefit to putting more time into your landscape on your on your property to be able to maybe not even think outside the box but get away from some of the simple things that's probably been done in the past where just put in the simple food plots and stuff there's more stuff that can be done to your landscape if you're willing to crank out the chainsaw again steel before steel getting you can get out there trap but get out there crank out the chainsaw and start opening some things up if that is your goal on some of these properties, which I think for a lot of people, if it can add some abundance to the wildlife, abundance to the opportunity out there, and then also, you know, hey, who doesn't like looking at wildflowers, uh, especially, you know, in the spring, you know, late spring and summertime? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know anybody that doesn't like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and seeing how the, the species will use that habitat and use that property is just fascinating. And like we mentioned earlier on when we were talking turkeys, dude, we talked turkeys and here in this episode, dude. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, we can drop this one whatever dude, we want. I know. This, this might be a little one, too. You got to watch out. All right. Um, just, again, even having, like we talked about earlier, those buffer prey animals kind of bring it back, you know, kind of full circle. Just with this early successional habitat, there's so many advantages of doing this. It just takes a little bit of effort and also some pro knowledge from guys like you who have the experience to be able to go out there and implement this on, you know, the property. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is super exciting because I'm going to start getting my, my feet kind of wet in this just on our family farm, which has had a lot of crazy it, stuff done in the past with it. And you just, you may just have to take a road trip, road trip and bring the beagles up and see some of this stuff. I'm, oh, listen, I'm down. We're talking. I, I've already got a game plan to go to a couple different states exclusively for podcast material. We might try to do a hunt out on one of them, but to try to, go do some stuff in person but dude i would love to see that place like i'll be honest and just see boots on the ground especially i'll tell you what would be super interesting from other like just people is to look at a probably a property adjacent to it who has done none of what y'all been doing and showing literally from you know half a mile distance same kind of stuff this is what it looks like there compared to what it looks like same exact opportunities yeah absolutely absolutely different status we oh we did that uh, we hosted an event at a client's property through National Deer Association mm-hmm. last summer, and um, we went to his property. He had managed woodlands. He had put in uh, CRP, used prescribed fire, edge feathering, you name it. He had done it. Place was rocking. We go next door, 800 acres, um, cattle farm. Cows had the run of the place. Fescues, like you name it. That was typical North Missouri. Mm-hmm. You go to his place, completely different world. He's in a five six thousand acre co-op and that joker is the guy who's leading the pack out of that big co-op who are trying to manage for mature deer that's awesome that is freaking awesome i'm telling you that is the coolest freaking thing and again it's it's again looking at this from like you're not alone being like the landowner like you're not you know we talked about one of the first episode we did with you guys talking talked a little bit about like that term island and everything Mm -hmm. being an island and that monopoly but why not be, don't be such an island as, again, a co-op and get other landowners on board uh, to Start do something. your island. Yeah, just, yeah. You yeah. Make the island go you know, from <laughs> just like, you know, look, you know, a couple pieces of sand and grains of sand to like, let's, you know, make it a full-on beach and, you, you know. You may have, end up with a continent. Yeah, hey, let's go, man. Let's, let's do it. Um, yeah, yeah. Don't be Hawaii, dude. Be North America. Come on That's now. That's right. Let's get everybody on board. But, um, 
to kind of wrap this up, guys, again, appreciate y'all coming on and sharing some time and spending, you know, a late night with us, at least recording this. It feels yeah, late. They started like, to take, yeah. yeah, people might notice the audio difference. They started taking our booth down while we were recording. <laughs> They're like, get out of yeah, here. We, yeah, we had to shift and run down the freaking hallway to the old media room. I ain't been in here in over two years now. But uh, forgot how much I like this room. It's nice I, I and know. quiet. But if anybody wants to, of course, reach out to you guys, you know, how do they get in touch with y'all? How do they follow along with the podcast, follow along with now? I, I didn't realize that earlier – video series y'all are doing through white yeah. properties and everything you know how do people find out yeah about so that? best ways is social media instagram facebook just land and legacy and then online is www.landlegacy.tv um if you have interest in consulting go to the consulting tab send us a direct email through there um and then from audio content we have land and legacy on itunes um we're doing two podcasts a week all pretty much strictly habitat management um and then from the uh visual side of things we have our own youtube page but more frequently dropping episodes um through the land beat segment on whitetail properties at youtube type in whitetail properties you'll pull it up tons and tons and tons of content just two two videos a week right now just pumping them out um so but it's a great visual representation some of the areas that that we talked about today mm -hmm. on on this podcast you guys can see the visual representation on whitetail properties youtube page y'all are animals when it comes to producing content i'm just gonna put That's that out so much right work man <laughs> well luckily videos. luckily we just stayed in front of a camera they handle all the rest of it but oh that's this it's a dream someone asked me today they're like are y'all gonna get back into video content i'm like i hope not <laughs> unless we hire somebody <laughs> no, it's it's a, like it yeah it's a lot it's a lot, yeah. but uh, yeah, we've got it made in that in that situation. Do you guys so. uh, do you guys do something where you do almost like a virtual consult? Like you look at yeah. the map, so people can kind of dip their toes in. If they're not going to do the full blown thing where you come to the property, right? Right. We call it a virtual property evaluation because we don't want it to be confused. Let's say with the consultation, mm -hmm. which is in person, but yeah, it is a it's a it's a great way for us to be able to learn the site. Um, through pictures, through mapping, uh, different mapping options, and then make some recommendations that are going to get them started down this road in a positive direction. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely an option as well. Awesome. Yeah, so everyone check that out. Dude, that's Appreciate even more it. handy. I didn't even know that. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah. Dude. I told you. I got them Dude, locked I, down. I, mean, I know what they're doing. We got some technology working hey. on this. <laughs> you might not know by looking at us, but. Them <laughs> boys Missouri, We man. know more than just chainsaws, boys. <laughs> <laughs> chainsaws and drip torches. Yeah, cha chainsaw chat over no, here. No, those are get... the preferred tools, but <laughs> we'll use other ones. Uh, absolutely. Awesome. Well, guys, Again, appreciate y'all coming on the podcast. Again, y'all have a safe drive back home. And uh, again, I, I, I'm, I'm excited for some future episodes, again, in more details on different topics with you guys, because this is, it's cool. And hopefully the listeners enjoy it, because it's something that's out of our comfort zone. We don't talk about yeah. this. Like, this has literally been in the last month month has been life-changing for me with this freaking <laughs> it's all about the stupid bird dog i've got all right oh, that's awesome so then i started caring about all this other stuff and now it's like so I, okay. told, I told you it's been this week it's been bird dogs falcons habitat <laughs> <laughs> i love right. it all right we'll, we'll jump out of that conversation yep. all right appreciate it, guys again uh, check out land and legacy and uh, as we always say y'all stay southern Thanks for listening to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes coming out. And help us grow the community by sharing this podcast with a friend.
Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool. I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right. Giving you a heads up here. So go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the the, like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.